have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. I pulled up some carpet in my basement, and on the concrete floor there was linoleum put down. And the linoleum's coming up, but then the, the part that's underneath the linoleum where it was glued, how can I get that up? Uh, there are products that will, re- will release the adhesive, if you will. It's a solvent. In some cases, though, you're probably going to have to take a floor scraper and it'll work a little quicker for you, but you're still going to take a lot of elbow grease. I wish I could tell you there was a real simple solution of just put something down and scrape it up with a shovel or something, but there's not that I know of. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt, along with Ken Patterson. He is Ken the Contractor, and you can reach him anytime at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You can also email your questions to Ken online at kenthecontractor.com. Oddly enough, we're going to be talking flooring for a few minutes here today. That's because many of you send me emails regarding hard surfaces especially, and we get a number of questions on the show. We're talking hard surfaces meaning hardwood floor, ceramic tile, quarry tile, and yes, even brick flooring. But what I want to dwell on for just a moment, because a lot of you seem to have problems with ceramic and quarry tile floors. Now, typically, this product is installed either over a plywood substrate, meaning you're on the second floor, you're on the crawl space, you've got a basement, or it's on a concrete slab. A lot of you live in coastal regions uh, further south, and typically the construction is slab on grade. There are different conditions that each of you have to cope with. And if you've ever undertaken a do-it-yourself project where you've removed some carpet, you've removed hardwood, you've taken up even some sheet vinyl, and you're installing ceramic tile, only to say six weeks later, two months, three months later, did I do something wrong because all of a sudden my grout's coming out, I've got cracks coming through the grout joints, cracks coming through my tile proper, what's wrong here? And that's what we want to touch on for a few moments. You hear me say on a constant basis that the work for most anything we do in our home that relate to finishes is in the prep. That holds true for painting, for wall covering, and it holds true for floor material installation. Now, carpet's one that's a lot more forgiving, and that may be the reason it was popular for such a long period of time, but the but carpet is actually waning a little bit in terms of its popularity in favor of these solid surfaces. If you're dealing with a ceramic or a quarry tile or any brittle tile product, it could be a porcelain tile, and porcelain happens to be very hard, and typically the color is throughout, meaning from top to bottom. But if you're dealing with any of these cement or quarry, or not quarry, but uh, clay-based tile products, I want you to listen to some secrets of the trade that will help you eliminate the problems with mortar joints coming, cracking and mortar popping out. One, if you're on a wood substrate, meaning you've got a plywood or an OSB underlayment, you're on wood joist, you always want to have an additional underlayment level or layer on top of that. A lot of people will simply... Start out with the plywood, they'll put the mastic down, they'll put the tile down, you know what, and it looks great when you put it down. They'll put the mortar joints in it. And what happens over again these few weeks, or maybe it takes a month or two, is you start seeing all of it crack and pop up. And that's because there's too much movement in the structure below, in your floor joist and in the plywood or OSB underlayment. The additional underlayment level, typically a three-quarter inch material, it could be, Plywood. It could be, and I recommend a cement fiber board because it's even more stable and designed uh, to better uh, take the adhesive 
for the tile product, but use this underlayment, install it according to the manufacturer's instructions, screw it down or use the proper nails, whatever they recommend, to secure it to the substrate below that. Then come back and install your ceramic or quarry tile on top of it. You're going to find that you have very minimal movement in the floor at that point. You've created a rather rigid surface, and the ceramic or quarry tile and the related mortar joints are going to hold up and perform much, much better. If you have numerous joints in the underlayment, you may also want to strip that with a product that is designed to span those cracks or those joints and keep them from telescoping or coming through in the tile itself because there's always going to be some minuscule amount of movement that you may not see or feel, but the tile will notice it. With that said, I want to take this into the next type of subfloor substrate that a lot of you deal with, and that's a slab on grade. This could hold true for those of you with basements. Even though you may have a kitchen that's on floor joist system at your main level, you've got a basement you want to build out, and you want to put a ceramic or quarry tile on that concrete slab. Anytime you're working with a concrete slab that has hairline cracks in it, that has expansion joints, that has control joints in it, these are joints that are designed and deliberately placed there when the slab is installed, you want to be sure that they're not just sealed, but that you're also bridging those cracks with a membrane that allows for some degree of expansion and contraction in that slab, but not have that come through your mortar joints or the tile proper. And that's where we see most of the failure with tile on slab. It's not so much coming loose because you've got a very solid structure below it, but it's seeing the cracks telescope and come right through the tile and right through the joints. The membrane that I'm talking about goes by several different names, but if you go to your tile store, you tell them what you're looking for. It's, it's just referred to it in a generic form as a crack control membrane. And normally it's installed where it goes, it covers the crack and usually six to ten inches on either side of that crack. And then it's glued to the substrate below and it's allowed to float just a little bit, but it allows some movement between the substrate and the tile. What you're going to find is when you spend a few dollars to do this and do it right on the front side, that your new floor is going to perform well for many, many years, and you're going to be extremely happy with it. Now, once you've got this new floor down, I want to tell you one other thing that you need to take uh, time to do. Most people don't, and you regret it the first time you spill a glass of grape juice on it and you can't get the stain out of the joint, you don't seal the grout joints. The manufacturers today have made it so easy for us to do that. There was a time you had to be on your hand and knees with a sponge, and it was a very tedious and tiring task to seal those grout joints. Now they make the sealer material. It comes in a tube. It comes with a roller ball on it, and it's a little bit like putting on some of the roll-on deodorant today, frankly, that it's got a roller ball to it. You simply take it, roll it over the joints. The sealing compound works its way into the joint. Now it's like a wax coating, only it has penetrated that. So when you spill something, whether it's coffee, grape juice, whatever it is, it wipes up because your ceramic or quarry tile typically is not going to be very porous. That cleans, but the mortar joints do not. So do yourself a favor. If you're putting in a new floor, you've got somebody else putting in a new floor, and ask them to follow these same procedures that I've just talked to you about. You're going to find that your investment will last much longer, and you're a whole lot happier. Are you surprised the number of folks who do it themselves with flooring now? It's become so easy. Before, years ago, I don't think a lot of people would have attempted it because of the type of products they have to use. But now, if you've got a little bit of know-how, you can save a substantial amount of money by putting down your own flooring. Well, the manufacturers have recognized that so many of us really want to do it ourselves. One, it does save some money, but two, we, we want to have that involvement in our home and do 
doing some repairs and some renovations. So they have designed devices that take the guesswork out of it, right down to the plastic spacers when you're laying floor tile. You don't have to guess, is this wide enough? Is it too narrow? You use the spacers that they have. You use the mastic that they have. If you follow their instructions and you put the crack control membrane down that I'm talking about, you're going to have a great floor, and you really can do it yourself. And remember, if you do have a flooring question, that's one of the things that you can take a look at on Ken's website. Just click on to Ken's Toolbox Popular Topics. You'll find flooring right there on the front page of our website at KenTheContractor.com. You can also, at our website, KenTheContractor.com, listen to podcasts of previous programs if you did happen to miss something that you have an interest in. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or email questions to him online at KenTheContractor.com. Welcome back. Ken Patterson is Ken. The contractor. He's here weekends at this time to help you with your projects around the house and also to bring you some of the latest information in trends and home repair and other issues relating to your home. Our contact number is 800-614-2975. You can reach us by calling that number anytime. That's 800-614-2975. You can also post your questions online at Ken's website. That's KenTheContractor.com. We see a lot of traffic through that website, and Ken tries to pull out every once in a while a couple of those questions and bring them to the radio, and this one just so happens to deal with kitchens. Well, it does, just by chance. This comes to us from West Virginia. This is from Roberta. She said, we need a new electric range. Our old one takes 220, and so will the new one. Is this all we need to know? You know, this question seems so simple, but unfortunately the answer is going to be a little more complex. And I'm glad you raised this because a lot of you have experienced some of the things we're going to talk about. And I'm going to deal with the electrical side in just a moment. Clearly that's one thing that you have to consider. But the other thing would be consider the size of the range. You need to be certain that it will fit the opening that you currently have. And I have talked to people that have not done that. They said, you know, this looks great in the store. This is a little larger than the oven that I've got now. I've got a larger area to bake in. They get it home only to find it really is larger, not just inside, but it's larger outside. And it doesn't fit the opening that I have available. So very critical item. Always be sure that the new appliance, in this case the new range, will fit the area that you have. You also want to be aware of the venting of that, whether you've got a microwave hood vent or a standard vent. You want to be sure, certain that the new style does not have uh, an area coming up off the back of it or something else that would interfere with the current venting. You want to be sure that will work properly as well. And then the range manufacturers will also tell you a little bit about the venting as well. And I want to bring this up because something that has been popular years ago, it was out of favor, and it's coming back a little bit right now, and that is a, uh, some will call it a direct vent, some an internal vent, a downdraft vent, but many of these ranges will have their own internal vent system, and they will duct or discharge to the outside differently than what you're used to. So if you're excited about that, you certainly need to consider the venting. Now, also, a very, very simple item that many of us miss on appliances, and a range is no exception, that has to do with the cord and the plug configuration. Now, 220 may look like and sound like 220, and you can say, I've got a 220 outlet to your supplier, and they'll sell you a cord. But the prongs on that appliance cord may be turned. The ground may be shaped and turned in a different fashion. One of the others may be in an L shape. What I want you to do is to look at the actual outlet in the wall where the appliance plugs in, and it will have an uh, what's called a NEMA number, N-E-M-A. You'll look right on the outlet itself. It may say a NEMA 316. It may say some other numbers. But that is going to designate the configuration of the prongs 
for the cords you need to plug into it. Now, there's usually not a price difference in those, but there certainly is a difference in the way they look. And if you don't get the right one, when you get it home, it's not going to plug in properly. So you want to be sure you have the correct appliance cord and prong configuration. Now, also, when we say 220, we're talking about the volts. It's possible that you can have a range that draw that works on 220 but actually draws more amps than what your wire or your breakers are rated for right now. For example, if you've got an older range you're getting rid of that is not self-cleaning, still operates on 220, it's going to pull fewer amps than a self-cleaning electric range will, which means two things. One, it's possible you have to upgrade the wiring to that, which could be expensive, and or two, if the wire is of sufficient size, you may find you have to change the breakers. And in some cases, both of those apply. So this seemed like a very simple question with a more complex answer. Roberta, glad you asked. Check all these things out. And for all of you, ranges and dryers, especially electrical items, most of these will follow suit. You can use them interchangeably. Be sure you've got the right appliance cord, you've got the right amperage, you've got the right voltage going to it, and you can vent them properly. Our phone lines are open at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And since we're talking kitchens, I want to go back to uh, a point relating to the remodeling of kitchens. And I think it's one of the, the most dramatic changes we've seen. And my parents moved a lot when I was a kid growing up, just a lot of different job opportunities for my dad. Uh, and it was amazing the number of different kitchens that they had access to, uh, including one that I'll never forget in Columbia, South Carolina, that had what I thought was a remarkable invention at the time, uh, but was basically a pantry that basically pulled out and had this huge drawer, I would call it, for lack of a better term, uh, that had shelves on it, and on both sides you could access everything. So if you wanted to put all the soup, all the beans, everything, but by pulling it out, you were able to maximize the amount of space, and it's something you talk about a lot, Ken, that we don't take advantage of the cubic feet that are available in our house. We don't. We have a tendency to use the flat surface only and forget about filling the volume space that we have. Now, the pantry style that you're talking about especially in custom-built cabinets of the the day you're discussing, too, was not uncommon. It was really a high-end feature of that day. But what we have seen are manufacturers worldwide, not just in this country, but pick up on that. They are making them so affordable now, and they're making them so that we can retrofit our existing kitchens. And that's pull-outs to put pots and pans in, to put dishes on. These will not only pull out, but they will also drop down. They're designed for people with physical disabilities, for those that have taller cabinets and have difficulty reaching them as well. As long as you can reach it to pull it out, you may not be able to get into the back of it, but the device will actually pull out and will drop down so that you can access this. They are double-tiered so that where you have higher spaces in base cabinets and perhaps no shelves at all, that you have two tiers to work with. So this is a, a feature that most of us tend to overlook in our homes because I talk constantly about using our closet space in a vertical fashion, about going vertical in our garage and our storage and work areas, but the inside of your, your kitchen cabinets, even your bathroom cabinets, are spaces that are sitting there perhaps with half of the volume completely unused, and you're wondering, I need more space for things. Why can't, you know, where do I go to get it? So think about all of these devices that are available by so many people out there that make it accessible and allow you for or, to have organized storage. Well, you know, and it's really nothing revolutionary. It's just utilizing what's out there, and, and it was very interesting. I was in New York City a couple of weeks ago, and... 
when you're in an urban area like that, they realize you don't always go out, you go up to a, to a large degree. And I had a discussion with uh, somebody about the fact that depending on what portion of the country you are from, you know, your school was this large, flat structure that covered all sorts of acreage. If you went to a school in an urban area, it had six, eight floors on it. And the same thing is true whether we're talking about our, our cabinets, whether we're talking about closets, other areas, uh, that, that there is that space if you can access it and use it right. But, you know, a lot of times what folks do is, is they'll go in and they'll try to utilize it in kind of a, I don't know, my grandfather used to call it, you remember Lorenzo Jones? Indeed. Lorenzo Jones was a guy on television who used to come up with these quirky adventure, uh, inventions. A little like the Rube Goldberg system. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And that's what it, it tends to be when I see people in their homes where they don't actually uh, go out and purchase one of these uh, closet systems or something else. It's kind of something stacked on something else, and you hope it doesn't all end up coming down on top of you. And I have to believe there are plenty of people, since this show goes is, is heard in places like Philadelphia and even in parts of New York, people that understand the vertical side that you're talking about, but so many of us don't. When you live in small apartments, small homes, spaces of such a high premium, you go up. You can't go out. And for decades, people have been living this way. But the rest of American society is starting to pick up on that. And I just want to encourage you, don't have the wasted space. You don't necessarily need to be putting an addition on the house. Use what you've already paid for. Use it first. If you have a question, if you have a comment, you can join us. You can dial 800-614-2975. You can contact Ken at that number anytime at 800-614-2975. You can also post questions and comments at his website. That's KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. You can reach him at 800-614-2975. You can always forward questions to Ken through his website, KenTheContractor.com. And it's time now for In the News. Each week, Ken brings you products, trends, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home, maintenance, remodeling, and new construction. This week, Ken, we're going to start with a room that's very popular with a lot of folks as far as remodeling is concerned. Well, for many years, we've looked at the kitchen as being number one. That's the place most of us spend the greatest amount of money when it comes to remodeling. That's in our kitchen. But based on some recent surveys, you might be surprised to know that bathrooms are taking the lead now away from the kitchen, shoving that back into the number two slot. And some interesting things we're seeing out there. And uh, for some of you, you'll find this a little humorous. You'll find it exciting for others. And uh, for a few of you, you'll say, really? Let's talk a little bit about some of the trends going on in bathroom remodeling, and then we'll get real here towards the end of this. But one of the things we're seeing is that consumers clearly are going very high-tech. Yes, I said high-tech, even in the bathrooms. We're talking about steam showers with built-in speakers, medicine cabinets with integrated TVs, and toilets with MP3 phone docking stations. Now, to me, that's absolutely fascinating, and some of you are rolling in your chair with laughter right now, but some of these people are spending thousands of dollars for these. I understand they've labeled those iPoos. iPoos. <laughs> You're exactly right. We'll talk about the iPoo here as we go on through this particular story that's in the news. These pricey new gadgets are making it even easier for people to stay connected. And after all, today we are an instant society. We are looking for feedback right now, not 30 seconds from now. So already three-quarters of Americans, based on a survey by uh, uh, IMARC, says that three-quarters, excuse me, 
Three-quarters of Americans say that they use smartphones in the bathrooms. Now, that surprised me a little bit. I was skimming through this, but that surprised me a bit, according to their survey. But baths, again, are becoming the most popular targets, as I said. Programmable steam showers with built-in speakers for music from personalized playlists are now offered by major brand uh, that we're familiar with, such as Kohler and uh, Steam Mist. These are companies we talk about from time to time on the show. They are listening to what you're asking for on the high end in the marketplace. Tubs that vibrate with the rhythm of music from invisible speakers. So if you are one of these people that says, I like this underwater concert concept, this might be for you. And Kohler's producing that as well. Comes with a small price tag, though. $3,000 is the starting price for this underwater concert in the tub where the music vibrates the water. And uh, I guess you feel like you're in an underwater concert, as they say. So all of those products are being launched this month. Also, something that might be a little more realistic for others that move from room to room, keep up with sports, news, other events on their TV, mirrors that double as flat screens TV sets. Kind of unique, sort of interesting. My wonder there is how do they get rid of the fog? Yeah. Yeah. So I have to think about that one a little bit. So that's something that might be a little more suited for most people out there. A lower price tag, somewhere around two grand for those. Plus, you got to deal with the wiring side of it as well. Toilets with automatic bidet light cleansing, heated seats, built-in speakers, and smartphone docking stations. Um, they say this one's completely for fun. Okay, you'll have to think about that one. Comes with a $6,000 price tag. Comes from Kohler and a couple of other companies. So if you've got money to burn, these are some hot topics in the news this week. All right, let's go to the phones, and it's John who joins us right now. Hi, John. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson. Good. How are you, Ken? Good. Thanks for calling, John. How can I help you today? Well, I listen to you every Saturday. Now I want you to tell me how to fasten a hardwood floor down to a solid concrete uh, using whatever you have to use so that it will not sound hollow when you walk on it. All right, this is a standard, I'll say a full, thick hardwood board. You've got three-quarters of an inch or more, standard hardwood flooring, not a floating floor. Well, I don't know if it's floating or not. It feels like it's floating. Okay. Well, all right, because there are so many products, let me, for our other listeners as well, let me make just a couple of quick comments, and that will help me understand uh, or perhaps give you a, an answer that's appropriate for your flooring material. But there is what I would refer to and others do, a standard hardwood floor product, which is the old traditional hardwood floor put down with nails on top of a subfloor material, traditionally on top of wood, not on top of concrete. That means every plank, every board is securely fastened to the structure below it. Yeah. Then there are floors today that are that may even be the same thickness, but traditionally they're more along the lines of five-eighths of an inch thick, half-inch thick, and they are laminated floors that still have a full hardwood surface on top of it. These floors interlock. They go over a vapor barrier, or in some cases even a, an eighth-inch or quarter-inch foam barrier, and they are designed to interlock but not secure to the concrete slab. And then there's a third version out that's a, actually a laminate that is not a natural wood in any way, shape, or form. It's, it's like a plastic laminate on your countertop. But those also interlock, and they fully float. They do not adhere to the floor. And then there is, I guess, the last item would be a floor that is a hardwood or a hardwood uh, a built-up type product, similar to plywood, but still has a veneer on top of it that's a finished hardwood product that will also glue directly to concrete floors. 
So are you, have you bought this floor or are you trying to find a product that is going to be right to go over the concrete? Well, no, I haven't bought it. No, I'm, I'm just wondering what to buy. Okay. Well, the options that you'll have, and I've done plenty of this, one will be to install a floor that uses an adhesive to bond it to the concrete. Now, that's only going to work if you know there's absolutely no moisture coming through that concrete, meaning that you know it's got a vapor barrier on the bottom, that you've actually conducted a test, and you know that the moisture is gone from the concrete slab. And you can do your own testing by taping a piece of plastic a foot square, take some duct tape, for example, go all the way around that, and leave it for a few days. If there's any moisture in that slab, it's going to show up as condensation on the bottom of that piece of plastic. And that's a good way for all homeowners to test it. But what I would recommend for most people that are dealing with a slab and you want a hardwood is to either buy the uh, the laminate material by itself, but it's going to have a little bit of a hollow sound, and a lot of people don't like that, or you still purchase the built-up ply, if you would, uh, hardwood floor that may be, again, anywhere around three-eighths of an inch, five-eighths of an inch, half-inch, somewhere in that between three-eighths and five-eighths. And that is also a floating floor that interlocks with clips, and it does not bond to the concrete at all. Hmm. And that is the floor that I'd recommend because I personally prefer that over the laminate because the laminate has a little bit of a hollow sound or hollow ring to it, and a lot of folks don't like it. But the, yeah. but the laminate also is substantially maintenance-free over a hardwood. You can come in with snow, with ice, with gravel on your feet in the wintertime, and it's extremely durable. Hardwood floor, the natural hardwood, has a tendency to pit, to scuff, to scratch. So there's more maintenance. So think about how you live in that room, and whether it's a, you know a basement you're coming in and out of on a regular basis or just a game room that you, you, you're not coming directly from the exterior. And to me, that would have some bearing on the type of product I'd want to use. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. I hope that puts you in the right direction. you got a lot to think about. We appreciate you listening. Yeah, thank you. John, we do appreciate your call. Don't forget, if you'd like to reach Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, you can reach him anytime at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And if you have a flooring question like John just had there, log on to Ken's website. That's KenTheContractor.com. And that is among the popular items that we cover rather extensively on the website in Ken's toolbox. Popular topics includes flooring, roofing, windows, plumbing, drywall, Faster, energy efficiency, accessible living, heating, leaks, painting, ventilation, buying and selling of homes. You'll all find it online at one spot on the web, and that's at KenTheContractor.com. Again, our number is 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and he's right here every weekend to help you with those little projects around your house. Give Ken a call, 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And let's go back to the phone lines right now. Again, our contact number, 800-614-2975. That's the number that Jim dialed. He joins us right now. Jim, you're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Yes. I got a question, and it's not anything that you've been talking about, but I'd like to know about it. I'll sure. See if I can help you. How often should you uh, uh, put something in the lines for your uh, septic? And uh, it's, uh, I know that uh, the lines are uh, 
They, uh, the septic people say that, uh, that you should put, uh, something in to keep them open. And, uh, I just wondered how often you should do it. I assume you're talking about, uh, something that's, you're not trying to keep the drain lines open so much as just keep the bacteria functioning so that it doesn't silt in with solids. Is that, is that? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. And that really depends on, how many people are in the house and what kind of detergents are being run through the washing machine, those type of, there are a lot of variables. But I would tell you that I've had uh, septic tank installers, people that do this as a profession and maintain these, tell me that in some cases they want to say every six months you ought to be putting some of these products in, others it may be once a year. So, again, I think there are some variables there. What I would look at, have you had issues with the drain field clogging up? Yes. Okay. Well, then you may want to do it more often than not, and what's happening there is the bacteria that's in the septic tank that breaks solids down is is not thriving or living to the point. It's not doing what it should to break those solids down, and solids gradually get into the drain field, and they're not they're designed for liquids. And so it tends to clog that up, and then you're calling your friendly service guy out and paying him a couple hundred bucks, I suppose. Absolutely, and the problem is... There's only two people in my house, and it's not used that much. And I don't understand why I have such a problem. Well, you know, again, that could be part of the issue as well. There are also, in some instances, these tanks need to be vented. You need to be sure when you look at the plumbing lines so that they're getting air in there. These microbes, they, they've got to have certain levels of oxygen and, and other atmospheric conditions for them to thrive properly. Yes, sir. So you could have a vent issue, one. It could be that, they're, uh, that it's, the tank is actually too big for the home, for the number of bedrooms and bathrooms and the way it's being used so that the bacteria can't build up adequately. Um, but my suggestion there would be to talk to an expert in septic systems, discuss these two or three options, and see if they can point you in a direction that saves you that constant maintenance. Yes, sir. All righty. Right. Thank you, Jim. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the help. Yes, sir. Take care. Jim, we do appreciate the call. Don't forget, if you've got a question for Ken, you can reach us at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You know, speaking of septic systems, I know there are a lot of folks, and I know you've been on some some zoning boards uh, and planning boards and things like that in the past, uh, that we've got one of those big ticket items down the road. And if you haven't had to pay recently to hook up to some type of municipal water system, you don't understand the cost, which, uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up, it was like 1600 bucks. I can remember that was a big deal back then. Now it's a lot bigger. And one of the problems are these housing developments that were kind of put up and it was kind of a wink and a nod. And you had septic systems and types of systems uh, that were put up. And now years later, they're either failing or they're just not working anymore, and they're causing some real issues for municipalities. Well, all across the country, it's not just the uh, East Coast, something along the uh, the Gulf Coast, but all across the country we're seeing these type of issues occur. Not only that, we're also seeing rules, regulations, laws change to the point that if you are in one of these older subdivisions and maybe you were allowed to have a septic system 30 years ago, Today, they are mandating that you tie into the municipal services, and part of that has to do with groundwater protection, and we're, we're, I think we're all on board with that because without good drinking water, we're in trouble, folks, and we all recognize that. So I think everybody's trying to do their part, but it's extremely expensive, and you talk about $1,500. I can remember some of these connection fees being three to $500, and now in some places that I am working in at the residential side, these are twelve to $15,000, I didn't say hundred. And at the, in the commercial world, they run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
the bigger part of that is fueled by our ability to treat the waste. And just as he was having some issues with the septic system, these septic systems are not lifelong. They are not permanent. They are they have living organisms inside, and they have to function properly. The biology has to be right. And if it's not, the drain field, I want to stay with that for a moment, but the drain field will silt in, and gradually it doesn't function at all. If you have an extremely old septic system or drain field system, meaning you haven't, you could have replaced the drain field but not the tank, but if the drain field system especially has been in place for a long period of time, you might be having some issues with that, or you might be anticipating that in the very near future. Most permits today require, most municipalities require you have an alternate drain field site approved when you get a permit. But if you are, to go back to your subdivision comment, if you're in a home and you're having to tie into that, you're also in many locations going to have to properly abandon the septic tank and the drain field, meaning that it has to be pumped. You can't just allow it to sit there or just say, I'll go fill it in with dirt and let the effluent go wherever. So there are a lot of standards and rules that you have to abide by. Whatever you do, be sure that you're doing these things properly. Now, again, when it comes to these overall fees, if you live in a location and you're saying, I've had the option, I'm not sure whether I want to tie into this or not, you can eliminate the maintenance issue we're talking about on the septic system by biting the bullet and tying in. Some of you will have an option of tying into just the sewer, even if you're on a well and staying on your own well water. Others of you will be told, no, if you do one, you have to do both. So you need to raise the question and don't just take your neighbor's advice or somebody else unless they happen to be working for the municipality, but check with them firsthand. See what your options are. Also, if you've got to tie in, ask what payment arrangements they have because this is a lot of money for most people, especially when we're dealing in the thousands. It's no longer hundreds of dollars. Ask your local authority because most of them, if they make you tie into it, have a plan saying, you can pay over a period of time. Maybe you're paying a third this year, a third next year. Some will allow you to work that into your monthly bill as a premium. Some live in special sewer and water districts. So raise all of those questions. Don't assume you have to go out and find several thousand dollars right now to resolve the problem. But if you can get off a septic system, your problems are resolved long term. Well, you know, and it's one of the reasons why you've seen localities try to get so much development concentrated around existing water and sewer. Simply, simply because a lot of the infrastructure is already there, and I know there are issues. A lot of our listeners uh, listen to us in an area uh, that's under the um, Chesapeake Bay watershed, and they're dealing with issues of trying to clean up now. And depending on where you're listening to us, there have been figures tossed around of forty to eighty million to two hundred and forty million dollars that some of these localities are going to have to pony up to make sure that their water is clean enough, and the waste is also dealt with, as you talked about, in trying to improve well, the overall quality of the Chesapeake Bay. It's not just the sanitary sewer discharge that we're concerned with, but it's also stormwater runoff, and builders and developers of commercial properties as well as subdivisions are dealing with that in stormwater management, the retention ponds. Today, much of that water in our listing area, when it leaves the retention pond, and I'm being facetious, but it's almost drinkable. It has to run through filters. It has to be a controlled pop-off and release. Oils are skimmed and collected, so there are engineers are going to great extents to be sure that we do what we can, not only for the Chesapeake Bay, but for our groundwater as well. That'll do it for this hour of Ken the Contractor. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or online at KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor.